Welcome to All Fired Up. I'm Louise, your host, and this is the podcast where we talk all things anti-diet. Has diet culture got you in a fit of rage? Is the injustice of the beauty ideal getting your knickers in a twist? Does Fitspo make you want a Spitspo? Are you ready to hurl if you hear one more weight loss tip? Are you ready to be mad, loud and proud? Well, you've come to the right place. Let's get all fired up. Welcome back to another week of All Fired Up. I cannot wait to give you this new serving of diet culture bullshit. But first, I need to say a huge thank you to everyone who has been providing so much support and listening love during this horrendous COVID crisis that we're all experiencing. It's so nice to get your messages every week, your emails and your rants and your Insta messages and Facebook contact. I just love hearing from everyone. So, And particularly from our last episode, the crappies, we got such a nice response. So thank you, everyone. Obviously, people have got a bit more time on their hands to listen to um, outraged people around the planet talking about diet culture crap and how much it sucks. So look, I just love you all. So thank you, listeners. It's just so wonderful to be able to connect with you and continue to feel connected during this really weird time on our planet. And I need to remind you, if you do listen to this podcast, you will have noticed that my times for dropping a podcast are a little bit unpredictable. And the best way to make sure you don't miss an episode when it comes is to subscribe. So wherever you listen to your podcast, please go and subscribe. And if there's a little bit of love in your tank and you want to kind of spread it around, I would love it if you went to somewhere like Apple Podcasts and said, hey, I love this. Let's give it a five-star rating and review because the more love that comes our way, the more people listen and the more people listen, you know the rest. We topple diet culture and everything gets better. So thank you, everyone. Please remember, as we said in the last episode, that the crappies are now evergreen. The rant-as-you-go policy. If there is something about diet culture that's getting up your nose, it's really, really pissing you off, I want to hear about it. And if you kind of just do a little recording of something about diet culture that's pissing you off and you press record on your phone and you do a little bit of a rant for a couple of minutes, email it to me at louise at untrapped.com.au and I will pop it in the freezer until December when I'll pull it out again and put it into our crappies episode for 2020. And to be honest, I think 2020 is going to be a particularly crappy year for diet culture and weight bias and weight stigma. So don't let it simmer. Get it out, get it off your chest and send it to me. And who knows, you could be uh, next year's crappy champion. Like our dear friend, Mandy Lee Noble, the current uh, prize winner and 2019 winner. So please let me know what's pissing you off. And if you're looking for something free, don't forget our ebook, Everything You've Been Told About Weight Loss is Bullshit, written by me and the fabulous Fiona Willer, who you'll be hearing from today in our amazing episode. This ebook busts the top 10 myths that are floating around diet culture regarding the relationship between weight and health and busts wide open a lot of the stuff that you'll hear from popular media. And it's absolutely got tons of science stuffed into it. Doesn't that sound sciencey? So this is a really good resource if you're interested in learning about the haze and weight inclusive perspective for yourself. 
it's a fantastic resource to share with friends and family who might not understand what you're doing. And it's a particularly awesome resource to share with health professionals um, like your GP or any health professional that's in your life, personal trainer, chiropractor, massage therapist, who knows, anything goes. But I would love this ebook to get out there because this information is important. And did I mention it's free? So if you go to untrapped.com.au, you can see the little box that will pop up and it says download now and you can download and share at will with friends, family, colleagues, for yourself. Do yourself a favour because the weight inclusive approach the Hayes approach has a strong scientific basis. This is not woo-woo stuff. This is actual weight science. And it's really important for us to get this out there. So again, find it at untrapped.com.au. We have an epic episode coming up today. Uh, but before we get started, I want to shout out to my beloved Untrapped community and course, so Untrapped is the reason why All Fired Up can happen. Untrapped is my online course for people who are looking to live a liberated life, uh, free from diet culture bullshit. And I'm so proud of Untrapped because it was created really as a labour of love with me and 11 other health professionals who work in the anti-diet space. And it's a very comprehensive online program. It runs for about three months. And one of the best aspects about it is the Untrapped online community. So we have a private Facebook group that operates uh, alongside the course material and they are just simply awesome. So hello everyone in Untrapped Facebook group and in Untrapped land. And I just want to say it's been wonderful because during this horrible time with all the COVID stuff, We've been doing weekly Q&As. Normally in Untrapped, we do a monthly Q&A where I do like one hour with the group in a Zoom meeting and we talk through course material. Since the COVID stuff has happened, we've been meeting every week. Every Saturday morning, we get together for an hour and just share and support each other. As well as, you know, we often find ourselves talking about diet culture and relationship with food and how everything's going. But it's just, it's a wonderful support and a completely awesome community. So I just wanted to say I love you all, untrapped people. And if anyone listening is struggling with their relationship with food and body and the whole bullshit of diet culture and is looking for something different, come and join us because we're awesome. And we're particularly awesome right now because during this whole COVID weirdness, I have put a special on, so I've really reduced the joining fee. Normally, it's uh, Australian dollars. It's $570 to join the Untrapped course. But for as long as this goes, this whole COVID thing, I've put the price way down to 270 So it's a significant reduction. I just want as many people as possible to gather and get support. So if you have thought about joining but found it too expensive, now is the time to do it. In order to get the reduced price, when you go to the registration section, so when you purchase Untrapped, if you put in the coupon code in capital letters, COVID crisis, you'll just automatically get that reduction. So absolutely, I mean, come and join us. We are so awesome. The course is amazing. The guides are fantastic. And the community is just really, I mean, it's phenomenal how people are banding together and really helping each other during this whole strange time that we're going through. So it brings us to now, this week's episode, and actually this week's episode and the next episode 
because this week's episode turned into a two-parter because what we're doing is digging in to the topic, the very heavy topic of the COVID-19 crisis and the whole issue of how body weight is related or is it to COVID-19 spread, seriousness and risk of death. Now, anyone who's been alive <laughs> knows that here we are in, in the grips of an epidemic that we haven't seen since probably the Spanish flu of 1918. So we're a century away from the last time this happened on the planet. It's obviously extremely serious. This is not the flu. This is something that thankfully doesn't, for the majority of people who catch COVID-19, it doesn't present as anything more than a respiratory infection to the upper respiratory tract. But for a significant percentage of people, and we're not entirely sure how many, but for a small number of people, but small but significant, it does turn very serious very quickly and has deadly outcomes. And that is why we're all in isolation. That's why we're practicing the social distancing. It's massive. And unfortunately, diet culture is filtering everything that's happening to the planet through this weight-biased lens. So ever since this started, these sort of glimmerings in media and scientific journals, they, these ideas started seeping through that somehow uh, the risk of contracting COVID-19 or the seriousness of the progression of COVID-19 was in some way related to people in larger bodies. Ever since that message started to come out, my bullshit antenna went up and I wanted to learn more about it. So during this whole period of massive upheaval, I've also been burrowing away at statistics and data and, and all kinds of different things and realized that I really wanted to do a podcast episode about this because it's relevant. It's very relevant because I am very aware that people who are, especially people in larger bodies, are feeling particularly frightened and threatened by some of the messages that are coming out. So the point of this episode today and next episode, because it's become a two-parter, as I've said, is to really dig into the science or the, the scientific data that's coming out and the scientific papers that are coming out and to really dissect those in relation to you know, how, how much of what we're hearing in the media or in these opinion pieces in journals, how much is actually based on scientific fact and you know, what's actually going on. And of course, as you guys know, there is a particular person on the planet, her name is Fiona Willer, whose who's kind of superpower is dissecting weight science. And so I have invited Fiona Willer along here today to talk us through in detail the weight science and dissect the weight science and the data that's coming out from across the world. Fiona Willer is an advanced accredited dietitian who is based here in Australia, in Brisbane, and she is phenomenal. She's a university lecturer. She's on the board of the Dietitians Association of Australia. She has written two books on the non-diet approach to for health professionals, for psychologists and counsellors, which she co-wrote with me, and one with uh, dietitians. She has her own podcast, which I cannot stress enough, is phenomenal, called Unpacking Weight Science. And I strongly urge everyone to immediately go and listen to that podcast and sign up to her because she has just an amazing breadth of knowledge in this area. 
she's just awesome. She is also my partner in crime when we go around the country, health professional training workshops in the non-diet approach, and she's just an awesome friend. So she is here today and she's going to help us go through the various papers that have come out regarding COVID-19 and its relationship with BMI. I have also invited another incredible human being. Her name is Jess Campbell. Jess is based in New Zealand, which is currently in quite a severe lockdown. Although thankfully, New Zealand have uh, seemed to really be crushing the COVID curve. Jess is a nutritionist and she's also a fifth year medical student. And she's extremely passionate about weight inclusive healthcare. She really cares about things like closing the gaps in health inequities and social justice issues in medicine. Isn't that lovely? Jess reads, writes and speaks about her experience of learning and unlearning weight bias in her medical training. And you can find her on Instagram at Hayes underscore student doctor. Jess is just completely awesome. And together, me, Jess and Fiona have been quite literally buried in various papers and statistics regarding COVID-19 and relationship to BMI for several weeks now. And we are extremely proud of the conversation that you're about to hear. We're also kind of exhausted. (laughs) I want to preface today's episode and the next one by saying there is repeated use of the O word because there's literally no way around it when we're digging into weight bias data and I deeply regret the use of the O word and if it doesn't feel safe for you to listen please don't. There's also very confronting information here about death, about serious illness and also discussion sometimes in great detail about body weight. So this this is it's pretty meaty this episode and the next one but the reason it's been done is to help everybody to understand a little bit more about data and arm themselves with their bullshit detection kits because plenty of what we're hearing uh, just across the general media and even in scientific journals doesn't quite pass muster when you really scrutinize the data. So I am really hopeful that you will enjoy this episode and the next one, but it is quite heavy going. So without further ado, I will give you me and Fiona and Jess. Ah, thank you so much for joining me, Fiona Willer. Hello. Hi. <laughs> ah, so what is firing you guys up? Well, you said to me, Louise Adams, yep. a few weeks ago now, let's do a episode about COVID-19 and about the BS weight related outcomes that are being reported left right and center and I said yes that sounds good and what's really firing me up is that we've got all of these papers in our hands now and Jess and Lou and I have been through them with a fine-tooth comb and I want the underlying data sets so that I can run the numbers myself I'm doing the best with what they've reported but there is so much stuff that they could just be publishing as a spreadsheet so that the rest of us can double check their numbers that's what peer review is like but I can't and I hate that oh my god I love how nerdy your anger is (laughs) 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 and Jess Matheson what is firing you up I'm fired up about I think media and clinicians just really not evaluating and 
taking the data at face value and there's just no critique of actually the validity or how does this apply? There is so much COVID, covert crap. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. And we're all in the midst like of this massive epidemic and it is a, a terrible virus that's overtaking the world. And I think as of today, today we're recording on the 26th of April and this is so fast moving. Today we have something like 200,000 deaths across the world. We have so many countries in lockdown and crisis and our hearts are going out to everybody around the world but of course as usual we are pissed off because we are hungry for data and hungry to understand and unpack the kind of very fast-moving science behind COVID-19 and what's making it tick but of course this whole podcast is about the impact of weight stigma and weight bias on how we understand basically anything on our planet and it's just so freaking clear right now that weight bias is shaping how we understand COVID-19 and I'm really happy that I have two of the finest brains on the planet who <laughs> <laughs> so have joined me down this massive research rabbit hole that we've been in over the last few weeks and so what we're going to do today is really unpack the, the science and the published data that we've come across. We're not going to do all of it because there's mountains coming out but we're definitely going to try and do I guess what we could call a whistle stop tour around the planet of what kind of data is coming out, what kind of papers are coming out from different countries and compare and contrast that with what's actually being said in our media and in some of our journals. So what fun. <laughs> so what are we seeing? So there are some really hideous media articles that are around that are basically claiming this idea that higher weight people are at increased risk of catching coronavirus, that higher weight people get more serious illnesses from coronavirus, and that there's a higher death rate for people in larger bodies. So those are the kind of questions that we've started with, like, is this true? And what's it based on? So that's kind of loosely what we're going to follow today. And I wanted to start with some examples of the really shitty media articles that are coming out with which have really damaged and upset people who are living in larger bodies and there's just shitloads of them there's tons of them one of them in particular from oh, two of them came out on the same day April the 16th there was an article in European scientists from Dr Esteem Malhotra called you're not going to believe it COVID-19 and the elephant in the room it's like yeah. a litmus test. Anyone who uses that idiom is horrific as a human, completely uninterrogated biases. Yeah, yeah. And, and it is a hysteria-raising article by Dr Malhutra, which raises this whole idea, like it actually even says in capitals <laughs> on the first page, and I'm really sorry for using the O words. This, this episode might have a lot of O words. But it says obesity, the real killer behind COVID, dreadful. And basically goes on to claim that it people that basically being in a larger body is a risk factor for, for catching this awful disease. And then sort of puts the blame straight back on people and claims that it's because of poor diet that 
and body size that people are getting sick. And if only everyone went low carb, high fat immediately, everyone would be okay. And he manages to insult Boris Johnson in it as well by saying he got sick because of his weight. So a complete shartical. (laughs) (laughs) That conflation between like the, the very naive belief that somebody's body size has any reflection of their current eating habits or physical activity habits needs to die. That needs to die now. That is the problem here. And he comes from a place of, you know, stating that we, uh, as a nation, the UK is the unhealthiest it's ever been as well, based on the body weight statistics. Wow. It's really dreadful. And the, and the whole article is full of, like, frightening stats. And that's one of the things that they, people like this uh, really run on fear, like raising fear. But there's very little to kind of back it up. He does this lovely sentence a recent commentary in nature states that patients with type 2 diabetes might have up to 10 times greater risk of death when they contract COVID-19 so these are speculative these articles because these are commentaries they're not based on actual data but this is an article that really raises fear and gives a very suspicious so-called solution as well because he's basically recommending that everyone changes their diet and then everyone will be okay and like lo and behold when you do a little bit of digging into Dr Mel Hodger he has a low-carb high-fat diet book (laughs) surprise Um, that means it's completely unbiased then he must have a really balanced view (laughs) nothing to sell here nothing to sell Nothing to sell here except he really does. It's incredible because he got such a big platform from writing this article. And even having an article in something called European Scientist gives it a level of um, sort of sciencey sounding cred so people are more likely to listen to it. And it's articles like this, it just does so much damage to people and it scares the hell out of people. Well, and that's a magazine though. It's that's not a scientific journal, that, that publication that you've mentioned. Yes. Yes, but if anything's called scientist, it sounds mm. sciencey. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, must be all sciencey. Yes, and that's that's kind of his groove is that he sounds sciencey. Like think of him as like the UK version of Doctor Oz. You know, he's he's, <laughs> he's got the cardiology background, but he's deep into the woo science. <laughs> oh God! So there's him, and then there's oh, there's so much. There's a New York Times article that came out on the same day by Ronnie Karen Robbins, which is very speculative. And the the title was Obesity Linked to Severe Coronavirus Disease, Especially for Younger Patients. And it was accompanied by the tried and true headless fatty shot. And like this article is, it should come with a health warning for just weight bias and weight stigma because it just hurls all kinds of stuff at people. Which, you know, actually reading this article was what got me started on this whole kind of we need to do a podcast about what the article is referencing because the article does talk about several studies and data that's coming out and that's that's the start of the rabbit hole for us. But another article that really implies a level of certainty that is not backed up when we actually look into the studies that it's talking about. In addition to the media stuff, we also see this narrative being built in the academic journals that that is really troubling. So on the 1st of April, there was a letter to the editor, I think, is it in, which journal was it, Jess? Is that the Obesity Journal? Yeah. 
Yeah, from um, William Dietz, and um, it's called Obesity and Its Implications for COVID-19, which is another kind of speculative. It's a letter to the editor, which is basically claiming a relationship between health, uh, COVID and weight. And the same time, the, the, the same date in the same journal, right? The editor's speak out was published. Another article, which is sort of horror, horror. Um, it actually, it, it just sort of tries to make the case that somehow this is a weight-related problem. And it says speculative things like, we are likely to see a collision of the two public health epidemics in the US with obesity and COVID-19 interacting to further strain our health system. Yeah, really um, non-hysterical language there. <laughs> Certain level of sarcasm. But what's interesting with that is that this is April the 1st that this journal is posting with a very strong level of certainty that because COVID-19 is a weight-related problem that we, we need to kind of focus our attention on people's weight when we think about this illness. But the timeline's interesting as well because this is only on April the 1st and, and so it's very early on in the whole progression of this disease, which only started to happen really in the United States. The first case in the United States was reported on the 21st of Jan, so towards the end of Jan. And it was only at the end of February that the uh, local transmissions started to happen in the United States. Yet somehow these people, these authors, confident enough in their knowledge of the transmission and the, and the data and the epidemiology of this illness to write these very strongly worded letters to the editor. It just seems a bit suspicious to me, really. And they're also using what they are pulling through from the research from previous pandemics too. So they're extrapolating from, at this time point, they were extrapolating a lot from H1N1, SARS and MERS, and also more broadly from sepsis and ARDS research too. So they're reporting they're lots not. of animal study outcomes mm -hmm. for those and then conflating them with or trying to uh, project them onto humans. But, that, you know, in real life, that leads lead a lot more clarification, much more studies to find out whether the animal model, model what we're finding, is actually a real thing. Yeah. And one of the issues as well early on for me was the um, reliance on the acute respiratory distress data when we were starting to realise that COVID actually is pre was presenting with an atypical ARDS as well. So we really were looking at oranges and apples in terms of the data that we were relying on or they were relying on for a lot of those commentary pieces. So it's really pulling stuff uh, that's not related and saying this is definitely probably going to happen in the same way. Yeah, and ignoring the body of evidence for um, the protective mechanisms of a higher BMI for ARDS as well. A lot of those commentary pieces assert that increasing BMI is associated with increased worse outcomes with ARDS and that's, you know, on balance, not what the evidence says either. Okay, so it's, a, it's not a fair representation of the research? No. It's just so, another, it's an echo of what we're talking about today, right? In that, yeah. you know, you get, whenever provided any information about BMI, the tendency for journalists and for um, research teams is to present it in a negative light, no matter how borderline it actually is in real life. Yeah. Once you start with bias, it just sort of snowballs. And it goes unchecked. It's yeah. like it was once said, and so we just continue to say it and we don't sort of 
take a, a step back and think, hmm, actually, what does, you know, the current evidence show us? We don't check it. And part of it is because of this perception that talking about body weight is newsworthy, that people be interested in it, because it is one of the topics that seems to be just exhaustingly everywhere all the time. And so you've got that expression of it. And then there's the, um, the thing in research that if you get a negative result, and that's where you don't find anything, you find that there's no association rather than finding that there's a negative one. A negative result, what that refers to is that you did all the things right, you did the test, but in the end, it turns out there's actually no relationship between the things that you were looking at. People don't want to publish that because they feel like, oh, it's not a real result. Mm. So those sorts of studies don't tend to make it into the literature as much as they should because a no relationship result is actually really legitimate. We need to know that there's no relationship there so that we can stop wondering, but they're less likely to make it into the journals, the studies that have those findings. So it's those two kind of things. A, this perception that we're interested <laughs> in talking about body weight all the time, which is ironic coming from a weight scientist, but whatever. And then this um, reluctance of research teams to publish the no findings results. Yeah, especially if it's these two opinion letters I mean, let's first of all remember what the name of the journal is, <laughs> which is obesity, which tells you everything. So, of course, they're going to look at it through the lens of, like, obesity is bad, okay? And second of all, the, the letter from William Dietz, you know, he's very well known for his weight bias agenda. And he's one of the dudes who's heavily paid off by Novo Nordisk and Work Work, for example. So he's, he's so willing to dive in early on in the piece with this is definitely about weight and we definitely have to focus all of our attention on, on weight because there's an agenda. He wants to keep his research going. The journal wants to keep its relevance going. And even though, as we'll find out today, there's, there's definitely different ways of looking at this, depending on where you're starting from, tells you a lot. We have a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> but the way we thought we would do it is by going around the world, really, to figure out who's doing what research and what is actually being found. So what, what this amazing team of Jess and Fiona have done is really looked at the, the main research papers that have come out of each country and done their thing which is dive in dissect and really understand the stats and the data and so they're going to be delivering some really interesting perspectives for each country so we thought we'd start at the beginning so we're going to go and we're going to travel to China first of all <laughs> in, in our uh, well quarantined way we're going to virtually travel to China and see what kind of research has come out of that country so the Chinese uh, paper that we're looking at. So the title is Obesity and COVID-19 Severity in a Designated Hospital in Shenzhen, China. So 383 patients admitted from the 1st of January to the 16th of February 2020 in one hospital in China were included. And you can see by the title, we're going after the issue of obesity in this paper. This is what the paper was written for. Yes, yes. What date was this paper written? I've got the manuscript draft here. It was posted April 1st. April Fool's Day was big, wasn't it? <laughs> for... 
And the month of March that went for approximately a thousand days was finally yes. over on oh, this yeah. day. <laughs> Wasn't it dreadful? It was an interesting paper. It was one of the earliest that was written about weight and about outcomes. And the time period that it was writing was fairly uh, far along in China's experience of this condition, but very early in the world's experience of this condition. We've got a relatively small sample size, but they are interested in things that we are interested in, which is nice. So um, I found the information quite useful. And they've also, which is different from some of the other papers that have come out, is that they've talked about the treatment that the people actually received. And they've talked about the progression from a relatively well, from uh, hospitalisation through to severity, like what, what kind of treatment they ended up on. Did they end up just on oxygen? Did they end up on a ventilator as well? And they've looked at the, what happened to people in the different BMI bands. So that's quite interesting because that's more information than we get from most of the other papers. Mm-hmm. And the thing about this paper is they found this was the first, this is like the um, canary in the coal mine for a relationship between BMI and more severe outcomes and this is the first point at which the media stopped pontificating about what they felt about BMI (laughs) and had something to use. So they did find a relationship between higher BMI and so in the Chinese population they don't assess BMI obesity as it were from a BMI of 30 like western nations. Theirs is from a BMI of 28 and they found that there was not a relationship between BMI categorization and severity of illness, except in men. So I really like this study because the point of it is around the relationship between BMI category and outcomes. They don't tell us about death, but they do tell us about the kind of people that were admitted to hospital and whether they progressed to serious status, so whether they were ventilated. And it also tells us what treatment that they received while they were in hospital. So all of that is pretty interesting. It's a nice little insight. When we look at the weight information, so we've got 383 patients altogether, but only 41 of those had a BMI of what, what they based as obesity. So it's a BMI of over 28. And of those 41, so we've now got this number of people could fit into a relatively small room. <laughs> of those, eight of them had liver disease. Now, liver disease is a condition where you can develop another condition called ascites, where there's a lot of fluid sitting in around the um, organs in your guts, and you are not necessarily very good at getting off extra fluid. So it may well be that a number of people of that 41 had a condition where they were kind of fluid overloaded all the time. So they would not necessarily have been in the bracket if they didn't have this liver condition at the same time. So it's not necessarily just humans out there in the real world who are relatively well that are in this bracket. There were far more, proportionally far more people with liver disease in that bracket than there were in the other bracket Mm. as well, BMI-wise. So I found that quite interesting and I thought that's fishy, you know. It's not Mm. really fair to put them in a high BMI bracket when the liver disease is much more of a serious situation to be in with COVID at the same time, considering how it works. And then we've got this only, the only relationship that came up as statistically significant in terms of progression to severe disease happening only in the men and only in the men with that BMI and only 41 of them, right? So yeah, it's a little sus, it's there. And it's one of these lessons where this is even for the first year undergrad health science degrees, the people in there get the message that, look, 
statistical significance is great from a mass perspective, but it may not actually be clinically significant. So there's a difference mm -hmm. between what you can get out of the numbers mm -hmm. in terms of how sure you can be that a thing is a thing based on stats versus whether it's actually really meaningful. And so there's this, you know, if we know that there's a statistically significant difference, what does that mean? And what do we do with that information? And in this case, with any weight-related risk factors for an acute condition, something that you get, you can't preempt, but here it is, it's here now. The assumption is you can't avoid it from this point on. We're in secondary and tertiary prevention when you've actually got the condition. What do you do with that information about high body weight? If it's not body weight, it's not a condition that's highly stigmatised, you go, ah, oh, well, we should be doing better screening. We should be actually figuring out how to treat these people in a way that has better outcomes than we're currently observing. But with weight, it's like, oh, well, you know. Interesting. Yeah. So I like this study. I like the information there. Again, as with all of them, I want, just give me the spreadsheet. Just give me the actual patient data. There's only 383 of them. I want them. <laughs> give it to me, de-identified, but I want the, you know, a line for every human so that I can run the numbers myself. Oh, wasn't it? Yes. And that, that's something we need in the scientific community. But especially right now, like give us access to raw data. Let us figure this out. And this is not unheard of. There are yeah. huge data sets of um, even population data that are able to be accessed by researchers. Maybe it's not just like here, go to the website and download it straight away, but just a cursory email saying, I want to do some analysis on this with my students. Um, please, can I have it? And then they give you the access code. Yeah. It's a big movement in research to have it's like crowdsourcing your peer review, basically, and it's a fantastically robust way to check whether you're on the right track with your uh, analysis and the way that you've framed the issues. So this, it would not be unheard of for all of the data sets to be publicly available for scrutiny, kind of in the way that the astronomers now give all of the data coming in from some of the satellites so that your non-professional astronomy buffs who really do understand the numbers and all the rest of it can can analyze this data as well much more effectively than just the few scientists that are being paid to do it crowdsourcing <laughs> yeah that's what we need more more transparency <laughs> yeah interesting what you're saying so what you're saying is that we really only held for men with a bmi over 28 for disease progression but then the there's, there's a statement in here that says like, the conclusion of the article compared to individuals with so-called normal weight Obese persons were more likely to progress to severe pneumonia due to COVID-19. Mm. And what you're saying is that that statement hardly fits the data. Well, it's in their terms, obese men are the only ones that they themselves found progress <laughs> to a more severe version. <laughs> They're spinning their own stuff. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? And it's, that's the only thing that we will hear out of that yeah. study. One thing I picked up when I read that, paper was at one point it does mention that people with higher body weight were treated later than the lighter people which might have Im impacted on the outcomes but then you couldn't really see from the data like clearly who what that actually did yeah and plus in this they're obviously you know they've actually got the medications that they're treated with and whether they had mechanical ventilation and all the rest of the things and at this time in these people that are represented in the numbers were receiving treatment as best as the doctors there could figure out at the time. So these are not based on really reliable 
algorithms, as it were, which they might be in a much more mature treatment of a condition, you know, a treatment of a condition that we've known about for a long, long time. So this is still as it's emerging. And so we can't assume that there isn't a lot of jumbling in who got what underneath the surface of these numbers. And it's going to be affected by also access to ICU treatment and to the medication, you know, whether you can physically get it to the human who you think you might need it. It's interesting that this one didn't control for smoking, mm. given that I think something like half the population of men in China smoke. So, yeah, all kinds of questions. But this is interesting stuff, right, that it doesn't make it into the sexy headline because this early Chinese data is, is the kind of beginning point for the COVID and weight relationship. But, um, but yeah, when we dig into it, it's just not that straightforward. Yeah, no paper is complete. So all we can do is look at the data from all of the places that we've got it. And unfortunately, we can only see what they've sort of summary papers that they've published so far. And we're looking for a pattern of a phenomenon that keeps being repeated across different locations to be able to see if it's a real thing or not. Because any of the findings from any of these smaller papers could just be a quirk of stats or influenced by the author's particular perspective. What we want to see, if a phenomenon is a real thing, it's going to be repeated in place A, place B, place C, place D. And if it's a real thing that's strong, it's going to be repeated over and over again. It's going to be really obvious that the effect is there. So that's, that's what we're searching for. And if there's going to be New York Times headlines, we certainly need a phenomenon that's repeated again and again in different places and more than just hysterical headlines. We need it like, well, what then can we do that's going to improve outcomes for this subgroup that's clearly more vulnerable, if it is, rather than just the skies falling down? We'd also expect, wouldn't we, Fee, a dose response with BMI, not just yeah. one category presenting with an association, but it's not held across you know, others. Exactly. And the whole the way that we treat BMI is nonsense in that we have a measure that is clearly what we call in stats a continuous measure so it's theoretically going from zero to infinity in a straight line as it were it's a bit like you know centimeters or meters or kilometers you know you can have zero you can have a million so bmi is a similar kind of measure it doesn't naturally lend itself to categorization those cutoff points are by definition to a degree arbitrary because a human has decided they're not based on something magical that happens overnight when you go from being a BMI of 29.9 to a BMI of 30. There's no way in an individual without a set of scales that you could measure that difference. So it, those cutoffs are dodgy from that perspective. And then from a stats perspective, we're comparing BMI categories of like five points or 10 points in some of these papers. And you'll see the variation. The Chinese data has got different widths of their category. The American data has decided that they're just going to jumble everyone from BMI of 30 together and then people from BMI of 30 to 40 and then people from BMI of 40 or above. So they're all different, different size of category. And if you do that, your stats, you're going to end up with findings like you're going to come out with a statistically significant finding because the categories are quite different from mm. each other. 
when you put someone in a category rather than looking at what their actual place on that line is, then you lose all of that information about whether an effect is amplified with increasing number, basically. So if you're categorised into a BMI of 40 or above, you can't tell then those people in that group whether actually they're mostly made of people with BMIs of 60 or made of people with a BMI of 40.1. Mm-hmm. They're all treated as if they're the same. But of course, mm-hmm. in real life, they're probably quite different. The experiences those people have, people have had and maybe their health conditions as well. Mm-hmm. It's not fair. It's not a fair treatment of the information, given that they do have their actual BMIs. It's not like they're just a tick box category when they come into the hospital. They've literally got the number of the BMI these people have. They should be treating them like the, the numbers, the stats that they use should be treating the BMI as a continuous measure. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's just a not fair. assessment actually that you've just brought up a really good point there too about they're not a tick box something that i'm really curious about in a lot of this research is how has the bmi been determined has it Mm. been actually measured or has it been eyeballed and is it just Mm. an estimate so that's not always clear either in some of the um, methodologies that's it we've got huge amounts of missing data as well for the bmi is it the uk data we'll get to in a tick you've got only eight percent or something of the people represented that have information about their BMI and then they're extrapolating that information that they have and making the assumption that it's going to fit for the rest of the cohort. Italian data. The Italian data, thanks, yeah. Lou. Yeah, I knew it was yeah. it's like 8.8% of their 21,000 yeah. dead people from COVID they had BMI information on and then they're trying to make assumptions, trying to make conclusions, I mean, based on BMI, but they've only got it for 8.8%. Yeah, so much to look out for, right? Even mm. when we start reading the research, there's so much to think about and that's mm. why I'm so grateful mm. to the two of you for taking us through this. But there was <laughs> another paper, that, like an even earlier paper, the first one from China, which uh, I think it had, and this is the one that really has been used by the New York Times, for example, it had 112 people. So even smaller than the one that we've been talking about, understandably, because it was the first. And I think that one also found a relationship between comorbidities and weight and severity of illness. Is that right, Jess? Yeah, so that paper uh, really sort of got the wheels spinning on the whole BMI COVID connection. But that paper was actually looking at cardiovascular outcomes as its primary measure. And it was more of an observational finding in the results. So it was a small cohort, it was 112 patients. And the paper reported that out of 17 patients who died from COVID, 15 had a BMI greater than 25, and 15 also had one or more of the following. So they either had hypertension, coronary heart disease, or heart failure. And so whilst the paper observed an association, uh, it didn't establish causality. And it certainly didn't tease out the relative contribution of each of those to the outcome. And the other thing as well is this study was really used to push a direct link between BMI and COVID, despite it not standing BMI as an independent risk factor. And we have to really keep in mind too that the relationship between cardiovascular disease and BMI, it's complex in its own right, and that it's often, you know, leaving out of the conversation the impact of weight stigma, weight cycling, and medical marginalisation on folks who have heart disease and are also at a higher weight. There's observations of, you know, worse outcomes in terms of morbidity and mortality anyway. Yeah, because so much of if somebody comes in and they've got other heart risk factors, rather than actually being treated with medication or being sent off for further 
diagnostics to determine the severity of the illness at that time, they're sent away to join the gym and lose weight instead. So this mm. delay of treatment is a huge problem. Lifestyle at the bottom of, you know, the therapeutic ladder, for sure. But just this uh, constant, like, conflation of BMI and risk factors as if they're one and the same thing is that Chinese study with the 112 people, many of these so-called obesity experts are, are just like taking the ball and taking the ball and running with it. So on the is it the World Obesity Federation website? Yeah. <laughs> I made that face too. There's a big statement there about how um, what they call what they're terming obesity related illnesses, big problems when it comes to COVID-19. So it just erases so much and ignores so much because the assumption keeps being made is that like higher weight drives these conditions in a straight line and, and it's down to individual responsibility which we all know is just a big pile of bullshit but that's what they're doing with that so we can see the origins here with the Chinese data and then I think we're going to go next to the USA the paper that everyone's talking about that came out of New York City is something that was printed on the 8th of April and its title is Factors Associated with Hospitalisation and Critical Illness Among 4,103 Patients with COVID-19 Disease in New York City. What a sexy title. So as you might suspect, this paper looked at like a flowchart really of people who were sick in New York City. So 7,700 people got tested, 3,600 people were negative. So then we end up with this number of 4,103 people who tested positive for COVID. And then this paper investigates what happened to them after that. So first of all, who got hospitalised? And then second of all, um, for those who got hospitalised, who got really what they call critically ill, so who became quite unwell. And then we do find out that from this sample that 292 people have died and 417 are still in the hospital with um, nothing particular happening to them. So we're looking at the remainder of these people in the data set. So, B, what happened to people <laughs> after this? So... Again, this is a situation where we've got things being reported, but there's a whole heap of data underneath that I'm desperate to get my hands on so I can rerun the numbers. It is interesting to find out what their positive testing rate was, and it is interesting to find out then who got hospitalised and then who became sick. Because the people getting hospitalised, that is at the decision of another human being. And so here we have a situation where bias is going to be built into the system. And so what we see in this paper is that the people more likely to get hospitalised, so they've been tested positive at the emergency department, they're more likely to get hospitalised if they're over 65 and if they have a BMI of over 30. That's what's come out really clearly in this data. Mm -hmm. So then you would think, okay, well, that is because people, the, the people doing the admitting are clearly most worried about those two kinds of cohorts. Or it's a, really there's a lot of overlap because in the population we have a situation where BMIs do increase with increasing age. So it's a situation where you can't really unpick one from the other because age is something that is always going to be there behind it. And um, also interestingly, as part of that phenomenon is that it's a particular cohort that's ageing. So the kind of exposures that they had during their 20s, during their teens, during their childhood, they're, they're taking that with them into the age that they currently are. 
So a 65-year-old today is likely to be different from a 65-year-old in the 1950s and different from a 65-year-old in the 1890s, for example. So we've always got to keep that in our head that a 65-year-old is not a 65-year-old. It's only a 65-year-old now. So in this paper, we have clearly found the phenomenon that doctors and people admitting people to the hospital with COVID are more concerned about older people and fatter people. What this paper also tells us, which is interesting then, we go to, we start seeing the more objective measures. And so that is who's progressing to critical illness. And so if age and uh, weight are determinants of the actual condition, you know, do they make the condition work? What we want to see then is that there's an increase in the likelihood of people who are hospitalized progressing to a serious illness in those two. Uh, categorizations. And with fact, we want to know what is associated with critical illness so that we can make sure that the resources that we have go towards trying to treat those who need it the most. That's really why we're interested in this stuff at the end. Um, and so what we find in this data, apart from the way that, um, apart from the, like, the fact that when things don't go through peer review, you end up with tables that are higgledy-piggledy and the percentages not being presented from the right percentage, which is driving me completely to distraction in this paper. But using the numbers that they've used rather than uh, getting swayed by their incorrect presentation of the percentages from each of the cohorts, we can see that, yes, men are more likely to progress, older people are more likely to progress through to severe illness. But with the BMI categorization, the way that it's presented is not clear like the effect is much smaller for the relationship between BMI and progression to severe illness than it is for hospitalization so we've got the people are more worried about BMI when they're getting hospitalized that actually in effect it's not a huge difference to the risk of developing critical illness and that's how that's similar to how you read it too Jess wasn't it yeah yeah after staring at those tables for about four days <laughs> we have literally <laughs> all of us got multiple pages i've run what i can through stats calculators as well and it's so aggravating because mm. if i had the data set i could just run it mm. but they said particularly table three and four in this paper is where they've calculated odds ratios and they've used some corrections but they haven't said what they've corrected for. They have one mentioned that they do correct for BMI, but then they're using BMI as one of the mm. outcomes risks as well. So you end up with a potential for circular reasoning. You know, this is related to this, but it's related to it because we put it into the model at the beginning. That happens quite frequently with weight, particularly when there's a conflation between, you know, the assumption that a BMI relates to health behaviours. But then if you're measuring the health behaviours as well and you're putting everything in the model, but even in their own reasoning, they're double counting health mm. behaviours because they're trying to use BMI as a kind of catch-all for all of it, which is false, but their own line of reasoning. This paper's just everywhere. It's, mm. and like, I know how to read papers. I've done research similarly, you know, like this using large data sets to try to figure out what a determinant is, is part of what I did in my PhD. But it's about as clear as mud mm. to the reader. And if me and Jess are having difficulty wading through all of this stuff, then there's no hope for your regular health journalist to really be able to get to the crux of what it's reporting. Yeah. And I think really you hit the nail there, Fee. The take home from this paper is that there does appear to be a lower threshold for admission for high weight folks. And that speaks really to that bias towards predicting a worse outcome at a higher weight and also just having that 
that lower threshold for um, initiating um, care. So, I mean, honestly, listeners, you have no idea of the actual pain that this paper has brought the three of us over the last <laughs> yeah, we're like, where did those 48 people go? We've got them then and then they're gone. <laughs> what happened to them? I know. How, how many, and they've got, in some of the tables, they're listing all the categories of BMI. So we actually have a full picture of, you know, less than 30, 30 to 40, and then more than 40, that everyone should theoretically be represented in there. And then in another table, they're only, rep, they're only reporting details from BMI of over 30. So we can't even reverse engineer where, how many fell into that group. It is maddening. One of the principles of a scientific paper, or even like indeed the scientific method, is that a paper should present uh, the information in a way that makes it transparent for other scientists to read. And to replicate. So the whole mm-hmm. idea is that you publish a thing and then another research group or person, researcher, with the information given, can go and run the same trial or do the same analysis in a different population group. It's the whole thing because we're trying to get this, like, is it a thing? It's not a thing unless it's replicated in multiple places. And so the whole point of a research paper is to be able to elicit replication in another location. And there's certainly not enough information here about the actual outcome data that's got huge patches missing, but also the, like how they did their multivariable regression. Like what do they add in? They've got p-values listed here in table three and four that don't relate to the odds ratio. That's what the confidence interval is for in an odds ratio to find out the chance of it being just spurious finding. The p-values relate to a a figure that they haven't even displayed in the table. It's so so weird. You can hear the pain in Fiona Willis. (laughs) She's got some kind of traumatic injury. (laughs) So Um, it's not fair. It's not fair to the people reading the paper and having to use this information. It's not fair that it's not all there or it's not there in a way that's kind of transparent and easy to understand. It hurts Mm. your nerd brain in a way that I can empathise with. For the humans out there listening without like enormous amounts of statistical knowledge, the takeaway from this paper All it shows is that you've got a higher risk of being admitted to hospital if you have a larger body. But once you get into hospital, there's actually no data linking symptom severity, how sick you get, or risk of death according to your weight. And that's a really important point to remember because that's in the data. That's definitely clear in this data. But going back to that New York Times article that we were talking about earlier, the lead author of this paper is quoted as saying, Obesity also appears to be a factor for higher risk of death from COVID-19. And she's saying that to the New York Times without any evidence in her paper. The paper did not even discuss the risk of death, full stop. It did have death statistics in there, but absolutely no data was presented on who was more likely to die, let alone any information on the link between body weight and risk of death. So Mm -hmm. this is what we're talking about in this podcast, how information from scientific research gets translated into the media message and this is this is the scariest media message you can get right but if you're in a high weight body you're more likely to die from covid this is not backed up by any information in this in this research so i really wanted to get that point across and thank you again jess and fee for, for enduring the terrific pain of trying to understand just what on earth 
was happening in that paper. And I think you know, we can give them a little bit of, well, not a little bit, like a lot of leeway because lots of these papers are coming out. There's no peer review process. Information is kind of being dumped into papers and, and it, they're under clinical pressure. People are dying in New York at a horrifying rate. So mm. there's no, um, no thought here that this is malicious, but it, it definitely shows how important it is to be careful with what we print and mm. be careful with our data, but also please be careful with what we say to the media, mm. especially at, at times like this. This is affecting human lives and affecting people in larger bodies particularly when they're being told something that doesn't actually have any kind of um, scientific basis. Yeah, and that and you've made a really good point there, Lou. Clinicians are under a huge amount of pressure at the moment to meet the needs in hospitals as well as get this data out so they can continue to develop guidelines and best practice. But I think if we're going to push, you know, pre-release, pre-prints and non-peer-reviewed papers out early, you know, much like Fiona's been saying this entire podcast, then at the very least, include that entire data set that you're analysing so that others can come in behind you and go through that process too. I want to make um, mention too of a really amazing article from Christy Harrison. She wrote for uh, Wired and, and uh, talked about how this is really troubling. And she does make uh, mention of this specific article that we're talking about, this paper, and points out that this research particularly was not controlling for any factors that we know have a massive impact on people's health uh, factors like cardiovascular, diabetes, hypertension. So things like um, socioeconomic status, weight bias, uh, race. And she really points out and reminds us that BMI is quite a lazy tool, which researchers are using as a cover. So we just can't see the inequalities that happens with health risks and also how we're treated in our health systems. So I'll put that link for Christy's article in the show notes because it is brilliant. Yeah, and you saw that in the New York Times article too, where BMI is used as a scapegoat in discourse around the disparities in the African-American communities too. So instead of opening up conversation there around socioeconomic status and marginalisation and colonisation, they overlay BMI, report that it's higher in those groups instead of digging deep into actually what is driving the disparity in you know, outcome and infection. It's a difficult social conversation. Mm, it's yes. much um, easier to just sort of um, blame it on individual food choices. Oh, and that, it's easier to blame it on some kind of the perception of being objective measure, you know, a numerical measure that rather than a look at all the horrific things that this group of people has been having to take for such a long time, maybe there's an effect of that. That's just, that's uncomfortable to have that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. So another um, topic to talk about is the Centre for Disease Control report, which is also quite often being mentioned as um, one of the papers to back up this idea of a relationship between weight and um, COVID risk and severity. So I'll just quickly go through this report. It looked um, at clinical data on people admitted uh, during that March period. So March the 1st till the 30th. So that was the first month that the US started surveying their, their data. And there's 1,482 patients who are in hospital. And what are their characteristics? 74.5% were older than 50. 
54% were male. Rates were highest amongst people over the age of 65. So that's pretty similar to what we were seeing in New York. They had data on people in this cohort with people with underlying conditions. So, you know, the, the actual extra information about what kind of um, comorbidities these people might have. But they only had it for 12% of their data set, right? So we only have informa information on 12% of that 1,482 people. So what we know about those people, 89% had one or more underlying conditions. The most common being hypertension, 49% what they call obesity, 48%, because in America, uh, obesity is classified as a disease. 34% had chronic lung disease, 28% had diabetes, and uh, cardiovascular disease was present in 27% of people. So what they're concluding from this is that older people have um, higher rates of being hospitalised, and also that the majority of people being hospitalised with COVID have an underlying medical condition. But remember, we only have data for 12%. So we don't, we can't really confidently say that. And also something to take away from that is that statistic on the 12% that 48% of them had um, what the, they call obesity. And in USA, the prevalence uh, nationwide is 42%. So it's only marginally higher in terms, so it sort of reflects what is happening with the body weight of the American population rather than being you know, anything statistically alarming. But it's sort of interesting to really look at that data closely because you will hear in the media and various places that this CDC data is providing, quote unquote, evidence for um, a connection between higher body weight and um, COVID-19 hospitalisation. And again, that's something we see, Louise, in other areas of the world, you know, the UK, as early as the 23rd of March, I think it was, we had that first ICNARC report on the data out of their ICU units. And the media ran with the headlines of 60%, 70% of admissions to ICU were in higher weight bodies. And when you actually looked at the data, you know, even in those initial reports, we could see it was very reflective of what you know, was happening in that population. It was reflective of the distribution of BMIs. So it is not surprising to see that is showing up and that's what the admissions are you know, looking like. Yeah. So it's interesting, isn't it? If it's just reflecting the body weight of the population <laughs> and the same kind of ratios are showing up in an intensive care unit, how is that news? Well, that brings to a close part one of two of our COVID Contiki tour. So far, we've visited two incredible places, China and the USA, and their interesting data. I hope that you have found today's talk as interesting as I found making it with Jess and Fee. I know it's really hard going and there's a lot of quite heavy concepts, particularly to do with statistics and just always just the, the awful reality very close of how much suffering is happening to humanity at the moment. But again, extremely important conversations that we need to be having because weight science is important and maintaining an objective lens is particularly important during times like these. So I just want to say a huge thank you to Fiona and Jess, my Kentucky tour partners for today's session. <laughs> and I hope everyone listening is okay. And please take care of yourselves. If 
something that we have talked about has been difficult for you and figure out whether or not listening to this information is something you need to do right now. Because number one for everyone is please, please, you know, survive this. Take good care of you. Remember your mental health is important. Unhooking from diet culture sometimes means needing to protect ourselves. Sometimes even when we're very interested in finding out crappiness of weight science. So please look after you, everybody, because I care. (laughs) Okay, so look, as I've said, this was part one of two. I'm going to be back very, very soon. In fact, much sooner than you might be expecting with part two of our COVID Contiki tour. And we're going to continue our trip around the world. And we're going to go to some awesome places. We're going to go to France. We're going to go to Italy. And yes, to our beloved UK. So look, we will be back very soon. As I've said, part two of this. If you have questions or if you want to find out more about anything we've talked about today, you can go to our show notes because in the show notes, we will have links to all the papers that we have discussed. And if you want to find out more about Fiona and about Jess, their details will be on the show notes as well. If you can't wait to get on social media and start following them, I don't blame you. So you can find Jess on Instagram at Hayes underscore student doctor. So that's doctor actually spelt as in D-O-C-T-O-R. And if you'd love to follow Fiona, it's very easy to find her. She's at Fiona Willer on Instagram. You can also find loads more info that Fiona has uh, prepared at her website, uh, Health Not Diets, and also her podcast, Unpacking Weight Science, which I highly, 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 highly recommend because you'll just hear so many more wonderful examples of her ability to dig into weight science data and um, report things through a weight inclusive lens. Such wonderful people. I am blessed to have spent some time with them today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I'm going to have a well-earned glass of wine right now and I will see you very, very soon. In the meantime, trust no one. Think critically. Push back against diet culture. Untrap from the crap.